Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond. And today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder fam. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're sitting down with Trini Woodall, who's the founder of Trini London. Now, following a 20-year career in media, Trini established herself as the expert in all things style, skincare, and makeup. And inspired by her unique design of stackable makeup pots, she set out to establish Trini London in 2017 with the mission to help give everyone the tools they need to feel their best. Today, we're going to be going over all things product, funding, personal brand, and really how to develop a diehard fan base and community. So please welcome to the podcast, Trini Woodall. Hey, Founder Fam. Before we jump into today's conversation, I'd love to take a minute to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Salesmaster AI. When iOS 14 hit, a lot of us didn't really know how to respond. And at Founder, part of our response has been turning to trusted experts like SMAI to lead the way forward. SMAI has really helped us drive the performance of our cost per acquisition to really acquire customers on Facebook. So do you want your ads to work better? 
Then if so, salesmaster.ai can help your business engage more buyers automatically using AI that places your ads in real time in front of audiences most likely to convert. So you can really increase the performance post iOS 15 and take the guesswork out of growth. Head to the link in our show notes to learn more now. Okay, now on to today's episode. So um, the first question I ask everyone is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? I think careers go in cycles, all right. And up to the age of 25, I worked for other people. And from 25 on, I kind of didn't. So up to the time, actually 26, I'd say. Um, up to that time, I was so all over the shop, no idea what I wanted to do. Kind of want to follow my dad who was in finance, but didn't go to university, no qualifications, really shitty at school. So I went and I became a secretary, which is what my careers advisor said I would be good at, um, for a commodities physical trading house. So I thought I'd learn that way. You know, I think that movie with Eddie Murphy had come out about, you know, the kind of trading, trading something. So I did that for a few years and then I worked in a trading floor and I was one girl and 67 guys selling angry American funds. Had no idea what I was doing. I'd go on the subway every morning and I would have the Financial Times, like the, you know, AFT or whatever it's called, uh, and then the Daily Mail inside. And that was me. Classic. You know, I'm going to be tapped on the shoulder and somebody's going to say, you so can't do this. And luckily for me, I kind of thought, I know I can't do this. And I took a, a, a few months out and then I thought, what do I actually really love doing? And I love making over girls. <laughs> so... That was like my first furor into it. And I did a column, I did books, I did TV. And that was a kind of cycle for about 15 years. And then no longer flavor of the month. But in that, I learned a lot. And then I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I tried it the very beginning of online in 99. Raised money really quickly for the dot-com um, boom and bust. Lost it all, had to make it to be redundant. Really tough learned so much around what went wrong there to then start Trinity London in 2013. So cycles, three cycles in my life. Mm. So I'd love to just go back before we get on to Trinity London because you've had incredible success there. Let's talk about the early touch points of entrepreneurship. You said that you started a company just around just before the dot-com boom. Did you do anything before that or that was your first business? Sock it to you. Age 17. No, Bose Unlimited was age 16. So Princess Diane's around, everyone's loving hair bows. And so I go and get this fabric and I go to Portobello Market in London and I get little jewels and I put them on the back and I walk the streets and sell them to kind of two cool stores, Harvey Nichols and one called Scott Crowley. It was like the coolest men's store. Loved it. And then the girlfriend I did it with from school then wanted to go and study art and so it stopped. I would always find those hair bows somewhere in a garage in a home I was living in. Three years later, sock it to you, my next idea was, I was think I was 19, maybe 20, and there were all these trading floors. And I thought, let me, you know, sell socks. What do men lose? They lose socks all the time. They put two in the washing machine and one comes out. So I got, this is like so not this world today. I got the prettiest girls in the shortest miniskirts who went around the trading floors and my God, did they sell socks? You know, because like these guys are just so kind of, oh my God, who are these wonderful women walking through it? So we sold 
I mean, the first few weeks we sold unbelievable amounts of socks. I ordered very, very many more from this company called Barter, mm. um, sort of Eastern European sock company, a bit dodge. And sold socks. And then kind of after a few weeks, I had a few calls from a few friends of mine. They were saying, these socks, the elastic goes, they ran in the in the washing machine, you know, this kind of mm. So that lasted like six months. But my God, those boxes of socks I found for the next 10 years. So those are my first two early attempts. And then you started that company, what was it called? Sorry, just ran .com. So I had Ready2, which I'd, I'd already been working in journalism. I did a column in a newspaper in the Telegraph for seven years. And it was 98. Online had no e-com. But I had got a sense that it would be this destination where you could get a global audience and you could talk to them. And at the moment, at that time, I had two million people who read our newspaper column. But I thought, how amazing that you give this advice globally. That's what it meant to me at that time. So I wrote a like one page on it. We went to see Cable and Wireless, who are now defunct, but they did e-com. They were the first people to do e-com. So I went to see this woman, Jill Street. I will never forget her name. And she said at the end of the chat, how much money do you need? And I had no idea. I'd never pitched a business before. So I said, half a million pounds. And I remember Susanna, my partner, like, she went, sorry, <laughs> kicked me under the table. Okay. And she said, and so Jill said, let me think about it. And so we left. Susanna went, you're crazy, whatever. But I think she's always been more conservative in our relationship in that regard. So then two weeks later, we get um, an email from Jill saying, I think that was the wrong amount of money. I think you need £675,000. Mm. So it came to our bank account the following week. I thought, oh, my God, now i got to build this company. And Susanna was very involved in it, but she was also pregnant and having a baby. So we then, I felt at the time, I didn't, I didn't know marketing. I didn't know how to run a company. I knew about the idea and I knew about women. So I hired in a CEO from a bank. I had a CMO, top of her game, who then came to cruise at our company. I had Carla Tech, because we were doing pearl coding, hard coding. So you need like 20 people to hard code a database where you're going to give personalization. And we were looking at doing personalization. I had this image that if I could get people to come on and say, this is me, this is my body shape, they could move this thing. And I'd gone to see the person at the time who was doing the most innovative tech in that regard was sexclub.co.uk because they did this kind of come into the world of the sex casino and they were doing gaming online and they were doing this kind of immersive experiences. It was really early for immersive experiences. So I went to look at how they did that tech and I hired two of their coders and I thought, let's do that. So then we'd do this body shape and you could pull it apart. And then there was the kind of offline manual element because there was not that integration mm -hmm. at the time. So we photographed 6,000 pieces of clothing and we put them on the website and you could say, this is my body shape. This is the size of my boobs. This is how tall I am. I want a red dress for 60 pounds. And we'd give it to you. But you had to come buy it in store. I mean, so how was I going to make the money? So there was at that time those kind of coupon things you could do. But that was like, that's not really going to monetize. So I felt we're going to have a lot of data. And women actually had to really, they gave us about 220 bits of information on themselves. So I thought that data will have value. So let's go and talk to people like Procter & Gamble and stuff and say, we can translate this data to understand your consumer. Instead of you're doing a competition to understand your consumer, which is not objective, we can give you objective consumer about data, um, cons cons uh, data about your consumer. But by this stage, I had 60 people. That road was going to take a long time. And then dot-com bust. 
and I had to close the business a year later. So the business went for two years. And that was probably one of the lowest points in my life, you know, because when you have to close a business and you make sure everyone gets the right redundancy, because I loved these people who'd started working in the business. And then I went off to Arizona, I went to a retreat, and I went to talk to the cacti in the desert, as one does. And I'm walking down the cacti path and I'm thinking, nobody can employ me. I've been self-employed now for a few years. What the fuck am I gonna do, you know? And I came back and we'd done a pilot for the BBC like three years before, and they called up and said, we want to do the show with you. So, you know, you let go of stuff and things come back. You never know where they come from. Mm -hmm. So then we did TV. Oh, that was that season. That was that season. That was that season, yeah. Yeah, got you. So, you know, you worked on What Not to Wear for close to 20 years. What lessons did you learn that you took from that to Trini London? So many. I learned about women. So I learned about women in the UK first. I learned about what made them feel they hit a brick wall, what times in their life. So, you know, you're sort of kind of the star at university and then you go to your first job and you think, I'm feeling a bit insecure. Or you go off and you think, I'm going to leave my career and have a baby, and then you feel left behind. Or you feel, I'm letting go of my work. Where's my identity? Or you meet somebody and then you divorce them and you think, I need to start over. I need to have sex again. I need to feel competent again. I need to feel sexy again. Then you could just go into menopause. This is like way down the line for you, for your, not you personally. But actually, men have andropause, which I can talk to you about later if you want to know. But so there's these, these basic life stages where we need to reset a bit. And just think, who do we want to be? So I knew what they were in England, and I'd done it with women in England. But it was when I went to lots of other countries, so when What Not To Wear finished, I took another show called The Mission Show to Australia, to um, Israel, to um, Poland, to India, to America, to Scandinavia, bits of Europe. So different religions, different skin tones, different ages, exactly the same feelings. And all the time in that, the thing women first noticed in a makeover was their makeup. Because many people have a body dysmorphia to some greater or lesser degree. They have that uncomfortableness to look at themselves in a, in a makeover and just come to terms with their body. But their face, yes, because you're going to do something that's going to definitely be a move on. And they're going to go, wow, I feel better. I feel I look nice. I feel I can look at myself. And that made me think that's what I got to start with. Talk to me about like 2017, you had this idea for Trini London. How long was it in development for? Because you launched in 2017. Yeah, so 2012. So I was already carrying around stackable stuff that I put together, that I smudged together in my bathroom, that I kind of mixed formulations in my bathroom together. But when you're an entrepreneur, from the idea inside your head to the idea on the table is the hardest part. Because when it's inside your head, you preserve its lack of failure. You know, you also stop to see its lack of success, but you can imagine what it would be. You know, so many people live in that world inside their head. And as soon as you get it out on the kitchen table, you have to face the reality, warts and all, of how how difficult that's going to be, that journey, and are you prepared to have the courage to take it? Because to be an entrepreneur, you have to have passion, dedication, courage, and like such resilience. And I had to be ready for that. So, you know, when I turned 50, which is when this all happened, it was kind of the worst time in my life to do it. I had a house that I had earned very big salaries on to buy, but the mortgage was huge. I couldn't afford it. My personal circumstances were difficult as well in terms of um, some things that had happened. And 
I also knew that I could not not do it because I couldn't look at myself 10 years later and think, you never tried. I just, and it was getting like, I'm not a 20 year old entrepreneur doing Bose Unlimited or doing Ready 2. It's like I'm 50 now. I've had a successful career, but I haven't reached where I want to get to. You know, so I still had that thing. I haven't, I'm not really doing yet what I really, really, really want to do. You know, I love making over the women, but I really want to grow a business. Yeah, wow. So it didn't feel like it was enough. All, all the success you had in TV and like you want more. I wanted something different. More maybe is wrong because it sounds like it's greedy. You know, I just wanted, when you make people over, you do them singularly and you see the impact. And I think the drug of what I do is to see how you can leave a woman feeling better about herself. And then I thought to myself, if you have a product and a business and you're online, you can do that globally. At the moment, I do that in each country I am in, where that TV show is aired. You know, it's like, it's small. What if I can do it to millions of people? Yeah, okay. So you had this idea in 2012. You were kind of playing around. How long did it take to get your first batch of products ready and what did you launch with? Well, for me, I couldn't fund it myself. You know, I kind of like, to me, to do R&D and to do the, you know, prototyping of, of our tooling took money. So I went and in England, there's something called an SEIS scheme, which is an um, entrepreneur's investment scheme, which means you can find high net worth people and they will lose only 50%. They can invest and lose, you know, get 50% of their tax back. It's a really great oh, scheme, which I don't know if you have here in Australia, no, because don't. it really helps young entrepreneurs. So I raised 150,000 pounds. And with that, I did the tooling and I did the product development. Yes. But then I ran out of money. And by that stage, I had a few people who were in the business. And so then I thought, okay, um, do you know Gary Vee? Of course. So I always follow Gary Vee when he had literally 40,000 followers. And Gary always says, what the fuck can you sell in your house? You know, go and sell the sneakers on eBay. Don't think like, you know, don't think it's going to come to you. So you've got to go and get it. You were thrifty. Thrifty. So I got all the clothes. I opened my doors and I was sort of slightly in the public eye. So I didn't give a shit. I opened my doors and I said, come in and buy the clothes. And I amassed 20 years of clothes from every fashion house because I worked in fashion. So I, I did 60,000 pounds. It's like $120,000. Yeah. So I, I had another year of being able to have money until I got to a stage where I went to VCs and got proper investment. So you launched in 2017. When did you have to get proper investment from VCs? Is that pre-launch? Yeah, pre-launch. Yep, so okay. we, we, did, we did a pre-launch round. Yep. And so we were pre-rev and we had to kind of prove why we were going to do the valuation at 10 million, which is my first valuation. Um, and that was a huge challenge. And I kind of, I knew, I didn't know actually to what extent the challenge would be. And anyone who's gone to VCs for money has VC war stories. But there's female founder VC war stories, which is slightly more interesting because 2% of investment into businesses is into female founder led businesses last year in the FT, they did something. And I'm just like, you know, there's the, the only difference which is more male skewed is coal mining. Okay, just to give you a perspective here. So as a female founder, when you go in and you pitch, there are a few things. They're going to ask you questions, which is how are you going to protect your downside? Yep. And they will ask generally a man, how are you going to m- maximize your upside? So different kinds of questions. I had a few questions from some Silicon Valley investors, like they'd sort of chat to me five minutes, then they go, how old are you? And I go, I'm 51. And they'll go, okay. Five minutes later, we were out of the interview. So 
there are other people who would say, I love your tech, I love the personalization, I love this match to me idea where you're gonna find out what people suit, but can you just do that in a third party environment, third party shop, and then you can just sell that makeup in a department store. And I'm like, what you don't get is I'm going after a woman who predominantly is not used to shopping online for makeup, only 20% of her cohorts did. And I wanna bring her to feel comfortable online to shop. I want to take away her paradox of choice. And to do that, I need this combination. But I just, it took me 28 meetings to find somebody who got what I liked and did. And so how much you raise? I raised 2.2 the first round. And then I did a further round. And so in total, I raised 7.9. But I've done 7.9 to get to 50 million rev, yep. which is quite a low raise to get to 50 million rev. Yep. We're not blitzkrieging here like Casper mattresses. We're actually wanting those cohorts to be quite strong. We want customer retention to be quite high. And I think the time in which I was raising money, it was all about customer you know, acquisition, acquisition, acquisition. It is on all-star metrics still, but retention is equally there. And I think we spoke about retention a bit earlier because I felt I want to build my business on bricks, not on sand. And we've seen a lot of dot-coms now who just, you know, there wasn't the ability for them to get to market and have a positive EBITDA in any shape or form for the next five years. Ton of questions here we got to unpack. So uh, now we're getting to the real nitty gritty. So. Talk to me about the launch. What was your MOQ? How, how much stock did you have? And what, what happened with the launch? How'd you like launch? Talk, talk to me about that. So I'm doing online. I've got a small following on Instagram. It went to, it was about 100,000, 120,000 at this stage. And I had done for the business plan that I had said that 3% of my followers would purchase in the first year. Okay. And I, and I did, that was all I had to base it on. You know, I was not the guy doing the pie in the sky. We'll get to here. I was thinking, let me do something that really to me is achievable that I feel will happen. And I think I said three to 5%. So we launched with 49 SKUs. We did, um, SKUs that are quite multifunctional. So everything snaps together in our makeup and the colors can go on lips and cheeks. And then, you know, things work well together. And we, I had no idea which would be a bestseller, but I had two products that I had taken forever to develop, one called BFF, another one which launched a little bit, tiny bit later called Miracle Blur. And those ones are actually our bestsellers. We sell them every 30 seconds. <laughs> so they really sell well. But at the time you look and you think, I don't quite know, but I feel this is more innovative. So I'm gonna put more SKUs behind it. But our SKUs at the time, we wanted to get SKUs of 2000 because we only had a certain budget. And the labs we went to were saying the SKU is 5000. So we then got the SKU to 3000. So most of my first SKUs were 3000 units each. You had 42, 45? 49. 49 different SKUs. Why so many? One makeup, darling. So with makeup, you've got foundation, con concealer things, that's 12. You've got this cream which turns the color of your skin, which is six. You've got 12 eye shades. You've got six type of a lipstick. You've got eight type of a lip cheek. You've got eight type of a lip glow. And you've got eight type of a lip luxe. It comes to 49. Yeah, wow. So what would your advice be to someone looking to get up into the makeup industry then? Is it to raise money? Can you start a successful makeup brand without raising money? I think you need to bootstrap as much as you can at the beginning. I really do think you do because 
a lot of companies I see who get funded then kind of spend the money erratically. And I think if you bootstrap, the longer you bootstrap, the more you really understand where you need that expertise. Where do you not have that expertise? At the very beginning, it was me. It was my what is now my COO, who came with an accountancy background. It was two interns and a makeup artist. And then our next person was another assistant. And then there was, you know, we were 12 around a table. And then by the time we got funding, we were about 24 people. You know, so you slowly begin to think, who do I really need now? And at the very beginning, we couldn't afford to get heads of department, but I also didn't want heads of department because when your business is a certain size, you want to kind of be so understanding to infuse the vision you have for that business amongst a team. And then as you grow and you know that your expertise is not enough, you want that person to come in who will say, I will do your paid acquisition and I've done it for 10 years. Boom. You know, and you think, great, fly with that. I know how to do tech. We now have a tech team of 46 people. You know, we have a data team of 12 people. So, you know, data, we have ARP, you know, ERP backend systems that now do local warehouse distribution. You know, experts are required for these kind of things. At the very beginning, it was very different. I was employing people who were smart. They come out of university. They were in their first job. They just had something which was passionate and hardworking and Many of those people today now run their own division. At what point in time, how fast did you know you were onto something? It was going to work. It's interesting that slower than I'm, not slower than I imagine, but it's sort of we got traction. So when you had, like we decided from day one that we would ship to Australia because I knew how I felt when brands launched in America and they kind of, we were the second class citizens in England. Yeah, like Glossier. Yeah, like Glossier. So I just wanted to launch simultaneously in Australia. So I think at the beginning, we had this very loyal customer base because two days later after the launch, an Australian is saying, I got my order. And it gave us this amazing fan base, customer base follower in Australia, which now you know, is why we're here as our second biggest market. And that was that investment at the beginning. But that growth is slow because you're getting to a few people. You're not then doing paid marketing. We were doing all organic and PR. Yep. And then you get to a point where you know that you can start to do paid and it will actually have, you know, you, you realize there is traction in the market for your name. Mm-hmm. And only when you feel that traction is there should you really get paid. Otherwise, you're putting money down the toilet. Somebody that was starting a new brand tomorrow in the e-com space, you would recommend to start with organic and PR before even touching paid from your experience? I would. I mean, first of all, Facebook changed the algorithm. iOS has changed. Cookies have changed. So the whole ability to have that, you know, whether you do it on a ROAS or whether you do it on an eyeball, and I think you've got to do it on a ROAS to begin with, right? But we have so many people just throwing money at advertising and they're wondering why there's no traction. And it's just that classic. It's not necessarily also the influencer markets become more sophisticated too. When we started, the ability to work with influencers who we were helping them and they were helping us feeling. And now influencers, it's a professional business. We respect influencers. So it's a different kind of monetary gain. So you need a budget for that too. It's not like you can say, well, paid is this expensive. Let me do influencers. But you can find people. I mean, I have a few people who I mentor in new businesses. So somebody came up to me and said, look, I don't have the budget for what I do, but it's a brilliant idea that she has. And so I said to her, there's a few people 
who love your, it's, it's a kind of food, okay, they, they love it. And so why don't you go and pitch them and say, look, I can't afford to pay you as an influencer, but I will give you 2% of the business. And I would love that in a year you do 10 posts, you know, and it's like you're doing, you might get the same as if you had an investment of half a million pounds in terms of what you can get from 10 key people who also are getting pitched by everyone of, you know, we'll do an affiliate link or I'll pay you 20 grand. But it's very different. Somebody say, I'll give you a percentage of my business. Then they're like, hey, I can make money when I sleep. The concept of making money when you sleep is very different when you're a performer. So it's just how can you think more cleverly than just thinking, I'll do an Instagram ad. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. I'd love to talk about Match to Me. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about the considerations that you had, you know, launching that as part of this D2C experience. Personalization online, I'm fascinated by. I mean, since 1999, I've been working on it. But I think personalization online, especially if you're in a consumer space, which is very, you want it to be an emotive experience, can be the most unemotional thing. You know, people think that's great, it just asks these questions and spits out the return of what you suit, but it can be very unengaging. So you need to make it personable, especially in the space I'm in, which is beauty and predominantly female. So when we started, it was a very mechanical thing. I had like 500 women in my bathroom. We put all the different makeup on them. We saw what they suited. We got some patterns, you know, and in makeup to date by at that stage, you have people who would do there was a brand that did things like saying, if you have blue eyes, these are your eye shades. But nobody had said, hey, you've got a brown hair, you've got a slightly, I call you Sally Olive like me, oddly. You've got a cool brown eye, so you're neutral, all right? And you will then have this palette that suits you. And to define makeup by that hadn't been done before anyway. But it's a very simple, easy thing. And I've always been interested in defining what colors suit you, whether it's on your clothes. I did a book on it, which sold like 600,000 copies. And I know people are interested in it. So so how could I then take that and make it an algorithm? And we use the word algorithm so loosely nowadays. But how could I put that in a database, put some attribution against it, and make it, you know, decide how many variations, variables there are. So there are 3,600 variables of skin, hair, and eye. And we had 49 SKUs to begin with. So you wanted everyone to feel they had a unique set of what colors suit them, but many are getting the same if it's their skin color, but on colors that suit their lips and things, it's different. So you then, from that thing on the wall where I put it all in, we then do an allocation. So when we're building the back end of the database, we look and we say there's kind of, you know, a color in a part is cool, cool, neutral, 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 warm or warm. That's its allocation. And then we look at your skin, hair and eye, and we give you an overview label. 
and then you match back end those overview labels and then you give rules and then you give exceptions. So you layer the rules and exceptions on top of the database until you get to this algorithm that's going to give you your return. And that's how you do it. Yeah, it's crazy just hearing you talk about this. I'm curious, like doing anything technology, not coming from a technology background is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Did you have a technical co-founder or somebody technical to help you build that match to me? Yes, I mean, at the beginning for me, Doing the rules of Match to Me was complicated because it was myself, it was a makeup artist, it was one of our initial um, CTOs, and it was about how, what attributes are we going to make. So it was many people in a room, but it was probably looking at what's cool, what's neutral, what's warm, was that, that we had to get to that. And so there was an education for me to the tech team to understand that side of it. And then there's an education for the tech team for me to understand you know, when you put a rule in and a variant, which one precedes the other and to understand that. So when I'm thinking of things, I need to understand how they're going to write the code. So it's kind of a learning curve for me. I don't want to sit and live in tech every day. I have to understand a proportion of it to know how it will work. Was there times when you thought that this was too tough? Like, because there's days when you when it's such a park and, you know, you're just and also the tech is near in the room and think, how how are we going to, you know, do this? Um, but I find that a brilliant challenge. I love it. It's kind of, there's certain things in the business that stimulate me the most. So, you know, when I was looking at what should the journey of a customer be, you know, every consumer facing DTC website is like, what is that journey? What should it be? Is it a journey of quick execution? Is it a journey of lingering for a purpose? Is it a journey of discovery and purchase and out? You know, how are you going to bring them back? How are you going to make it easy to bring them back? You know, those customer journeys to me are things that every day when I look at the website, I just think, mm, should we be doing this or should we change that? And now we have, like we just introduced Snowplow. Snowplow is a great new bolt-on. And Snowplow, do you know Snowplow? Okay, Snowplow has the ability, since iOS has screwed us over um, and uh, Facebook hasn't, we don't know where everyone comes from. But Snowplow allows you to know where everyone has come from onto your website. So you then track them from where they've come from. So I know they've come from a Facebook ad, and I know they've come from organic social. And oh, there's like so, yeah, but you've got like UTM that, yeah. links, yeah, but yeah. then Snowplow will take that UTM link, but it will also then, instead of doing a hot jar looking at the site and seeing the journey, it will allow that journey to be taken from where they've come from, you know where they've come from, and then look at how they behave on the site. And then we put that into our data. And then we look at the different journeys of different people, where they've come from yes. and what those journeys are like. So it's incredibly good to then work out if people come from this kind of journey, what's their AOV, what's their lifetime value, what's their compounded lifetime value, because they're all different uh, metrics to look at. Got you. So then you can see the performance of the channels. Yeah. And you, you know where you might want to put more money into or you know how you want to tweak things more. It just gives you more overview. Next question I have for you is just around product validation pre-launch. So did you do any product validation before you launched or because of your 20 plus years? No, I do because my product val validation is, you know, I know everyone else's products. So I then do my own products. I formulate them. You go back and forth with the lab because the formulation is not correct and you keep tweaking and tweaking and tweaking on, first of all, the formulation, the ingredients, the inky list, and then on the color itself. So if you're doing makeup, that's how you do it. Skincare, it's just on the formulation. And then when I did the makeovers of those 500 women in the bathroom, we kept saying, what do you think? And look at your face and does it feel different? And that's where we got the validation. And we got tremendous validation. There was 
and also that's when I knew because we weren't at the stage when you went back to your question of how did you know what to order the most of is BFF everyone was like this is unbelievable I've never felt this on my face like this before this is like not wearing makeup but my skin looks amazing and I look healthy and well and I thought I know that's going to sell well I just you know you get a kind of gut feeling of something talk to me about the team so you said you started with a small team now a lot of the people that started with you are divisional heads Mm -hmm. from a leadership standpoint sometimes you know there's great individual contributors they're not the best leaders talk to me through that journey that you've been on depends entirely on how much they are empowered and also how much they're mentored and I think sometimes we've gone at a pace where it's so fast they probably felt am I being mentored enough am I learning enough or am I just expected to do my work and just get on with it and I think when you have a company that's growing three or four hundred percent a year that's the hardest challenge you've got to face So now we're at a stage, we have 200 employees and we look at the spread of the people and we look, we just done in fact now a survey on how you feel about working in the business and doing that kind of internal facing survey. And we're doing a internal leadership thing right now of saying, we know how we want to appear as a company to the rest of the world. We know what we want to imbue in our followers and our customers. So let's take those principles and let's proactively now internalize them to the team because some of them have been you know we onboarded 65 people during covid remotely so that integration of people learning to work together as teams is key but i think the people who there's a balance in a startup that you have when you have somebody who's come and they haven't had other work experience before they have to learn on the job certain skill sets but they know the product and the customer better than anyone nearly you'll bring in because they've lived and breathed it and that evolution of the customer because customer evolves too that core customer beginning may still be there at the end but it's broadened that customer base and they've grown with that and they've seen that evolution so there's a huge benefit but that benefit stands well when they themselves feel they're growing you know and that they're learning how to be a manager so there are two people in the room now you can ask them who started as first job and intern and now they both run teams. So how about you? How, how do you continually develop as a CEO? Because it's a much different job when you're a startup to now so scale up. Like how, how are you yeah, developing it's so and, different. and it's tough. Very tough. So Talk going from being a founder to being a CEO, lots of founders don't make it to be a CEO. And in fact, they're thrown off their board and they become chairman and a CEO is brought in by the next round. Mm. And also there's your choice of how much do you feel that you really want to still be ultimately in charge of the business. So for me, I still want to be ultimately in charge of the business. And until the next, after the next round, I want to be in that position too. So maybe pre-exit or whatever we do, or pre-majority sale, Mm -hmm. I want to be there as a CEO. So what do I need to change in order to do that, in order for the company to grow the best it can without somebody else maybe more qualified as a CEO, but perhaps less qualified in the knowledge of what we are as a business come in. So about six months ago, a friend of mine who IPO'd a biotech company in America, who's really smart woman and had a tremendous stress in her work. She went to an American company and this guy had done the Harvard intervention program for 10 years. And he's an amazing um, CEO coach. So she said, I re- it's really helped me to get a balance, to understand what proportion of my 
day is spent on strategy, how much I'm in the weeds, and how much I'm guiding. So I've started working with him in the last month. And it's been so such an eye-opener because I love to be with people who I know are much I'm I'm okay smart, but he's super smart. You know, so so it's so stimulating to being with somebody super smart. So very quickly, within an hour and a half, I thought he's great. And then I actually said, I want you to work with the whole C-suite because I want us all to be getting what I'm getting. So they're all now slowly working with him, which is going to be good because then we're going to have an off, offside in, um, in December and just bring that all together as a team. But for me, he said, you know, what do you find easiest in your job? What do you find hardest in your job? So I said, what I find easiest in my job is when I'm with our customer and follower, because I know her, I've known her for 30 years. So it's like, it's my biggest comfort zone. I know what she's going to think and what she's going to say. And I, I, and he said, well, how are you with them? And I said, well, I try and think, how can I empower them to be their best? How can I lift them up? How can I make them see the good in something when they feel bad about something? I guide them sometimes. Sometimes I'll have, you know, not strong, tough words, but just like, think about this kind of quite direct. And sometimes I'll be very careful and nurturing. Um, but I'll try and, and I also am inspiring for them. And he said, well, that's what you need to bring the C-suite. Because that, you know that and you're incredibly comfortable with that. And in the C-suite right now, some days I am inspiring and some days I am incredibly strategic. Uh, strategic. But some days I'm so in the weeds. You know, we have a new launch and I'm like, why is that picture on the third page looking like that? You know, it's like, there are 20 people who can do that. But I, I go back to that, that's my baby. And that's where the founder does not become the CEO. So becoming the CEO is not worrying about that. There's a very funny, you get the things from the weirdest people, Barbara on Shark Tank. Oh, yeah, we'll be okay. the leader, yeah. All right, so she's yeah. fantastic. So Barbara sits there in her like, <laughs> she's just so funny, Barbara. And she goes, 20, 80% is good enough. 80% is good enough. And what my 100% is to a consumer is probably 150%. So 80% actually, and when you're a founder at the very beginning, 80% isn't good enough because you need to be 120% to get to the place. But I'm at the business now where 80% is good enough. And like, I can wake up a day and say it is good enough. So I don't need to send that email actually. You know, I can. So I'm still in that learning stage, but I'm really excited because I feel now maybe I can be that person. Whereas in the last few months, I was, there's a lot on, you know, I'm kind of running around the world. So, because I have three parts, I am running the business, I'm the face of the business, and I'm also the social media um, face of the business. And that stretches you quite a lot. You talked about the hardest part you're working through with your coach. Can you share that? I think it's understanding how other people are and understanding what makes them tick. And getting that person to help me understand people better, who maybe I just find sometimes I just don't quite know how to work with them. So that's the hardest thing because I just have to kind of, that's probably the hardest thing. And that's, but that's the thing I most want to get right as well. So, and also deciding, you know, who are the right people to take the business forward? That's the hardest thing. You know, when you look at your entire team and you think, who are those people who would take the business forward and who are those people who won't? Holding people to account. Holding people to account. You know, there's certain areas of the business that have very clear KPIs and certain businesses where KPIs are far harder 
to be very clear. So when teams are looking at other teams, and they some of them have very clear KPIs, and then they think, well, what are their what's their accountability? So it's it's getting I think teams to understand there's different types of accountability for each team, and there's different ways each team will work. Fundamentally, very you know, ops works so differently from tech, which works differently from finance and new product development and marketing. You know, they they all have a different rhythm, but there needs to be that mutual respect for. Are they working? Most people in a business just want to know everyone else is pulling their weight as equally as they are. And that's kind of one of the core things for business working well, because then you're not kind of thinking, I'm pulling all nighters and they're just like, what are they doing? And sometimes that's from a lack of knowledge of another department's work. So it's also, we started to do these things on a Friday. We, we do this uh, kind of like a town hall meeting, but it's been, uh, it's been online. And so we now get a department to kind of present what they do and they have questions at the end. And interestingly, most of them, there's a few questions at the end, but we did customer service. And they had so many questions from the team, all different members of the team who just was fascinated to know how does customer, what happens when this happens? What happens when this happens? And I thought, this is, this is great. This is really great because then they appreciate all those different things that customer service are dealing with. Let's talk about personal brand. We'll switch gears and yeah. uh, work towards wrapping up. So. Talk to me around the challenges starting a brand kind of around your personal brand and what advice you would give to people around doing that, especially even if you think of wanting to build an asset that could one day be sold as well. Have you been, how strategic have you been? Talk to us about that. There's pluses and minuses about having your name above the door. So the plus is that it might open some doors. It might then make people more judging that you're going to be one specific thing when you could be being another because you have a history of being one thing and your business is another. So that's a challenge in itself, which I've encountered a bit. But also the downside is that people might say at the very beginning, you know, we need you there all the time. But there are a squillion examples of companies where that's not the case, from Bobby Brown to Laura Mercier to Charlotte Tilbury to... Um, to Estee Lauder, lots of them. So I don't feel at all that that's an issue because also in so many transactions today, the exit for the company might not be the exit for the founder. And there is that kind of either you've got a sort of, you kind of got a rollout of your, of your deal or I think like Tilbury's case, you know, she was, had a percentage of the new co with the people who bought it and brought everyone else out. So she's in that business doing stuff with the existing CEO, Dimitra, and just, you know, that's the next evolution of the business. So actually there's many examples where that I do not worry about. Um, but I would worry, my biggest worry would be that when I find somebody who ultimately might take the business to that next level, um, that they would do it responsibly in the way that I would love the company to be totally, totally global. And I know, look, uh, I'd love to talk about as well your connection that you've built with uh, your community, Trini Tribes. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that and what advice you would give to people around cultivating uh, yeah, community and just building relationships at scale because that's really what it's all about. It is exactly that. Yeah. There's different communities we've seen. We've seen the Glossier community and the Glass Emily Weiss and then, and then came Glossier. Yeah. Um, so I think communities have been manufactured by some brands, and I think those perhaps ultimately are the least successful because they just are living on quicksand. Ours was started by a woman in Northwest England called Kelly, and she followed 
the brand me on Facebook and she started a little fan page and then that grew and then we had a few of them and then we saw they were there and they all had different one had taken my face another a bit of yellow you know they'd screen grab bits of of what they felt was us and then we sort of then said well look would you like to you know come together this trini tribe that they sort of called themselves and and you're you know you've got admins of the page we could call you ambassadors um and we could also when we have a new launch we would send it just you know to the ambassadors so you can feel that you have a bit more awareness than that community that you're building but there's never money that exchanges hands there's never promos that exchange hands there's never commercialization and i think the true beauty of our community is that there's a passion and we inspire a passion for them to make the most of themselves but that community itself fosters you know lifting up women so during covid we had a, an explosion of the community and i would sometimes say on you know the 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 trini tribe in germany is now 300 people if you want to meet a group of women where you know you can decide the woman that you want to be today not who your father brother daughter mother aunt sister best friend thinks you should be that's that was at that time that message was incredibly relevant because most women were sitting in that household be, juggling five roles and having no time for themselves and feeling so stretched and that resonated so they joined their local tribe we now have them in 33 tribes around the world in 16 countries um of women where i think new south wales is i don't know how many new, new south wales is but i think that's about 5000 or something like that yeah and so we have about 10000 in australia and how do you how do you constantly build that community and and ensure it thrives and it's about that it's never a one way street you know instagram is a one way street it's a fan page it's like people leave comments and stuff and facebook is a two way community because you can upload you can you know put your contribution in you can get a response so it's a perfect environment for building a community and they all feel heard because we have paris who's one of the early people who just in london runs a team now of 12 i think 12 and they answer 11000 comments a week so we you know when you look at scaling that you look at what you outsource and what you scale and what is really important to keep in house it's something like that because that is our heartbeat of how our follower and our customers feeling when something comes out about a product it's like they're the, our biggest advocate and our biggest critic so we know quite quickly if something is happening that we need to look at we know if something is resonating immediately we know the zeitgeist of how the feeling around political things if we want to put up a meme you know we can kind of get a sense of we won't make a huge error of judgment you know around something and so and some of the people in that team have moved to other parts of our company so if you've if your first intro to trinity london is in that community team you know our following customers so well so when you go to another team you take that knowledge with you to whatever you're doing so it's like this fantastic knowledge center for our customer and our follower yeah and i suppose you you guys must use that as incredible insight for next lines of product and all sorts of things like we do it in a way that i think i've spent the last 5 years developing what i think women will want and maybe didn't realize they they needed so you know we did makeup for 3 and a half 4 years 4 and a bit years we launched skincare in february and 
they had said, I hope you're doing skincare, but they had no idea what was coming because that was all what I felt I wanted to give them, that I felt they would really need and understand a routine and understand about ingredients and accept. And that's 30% of our business now in revenue in six months. Yeah, wow. So that kind of, we now are looking at how we grow skincare. And I was in the lab and we came up with sort of 20 new concepts. So I thought, okay, this is the first time I'd ever done it. And I just um, said, I'm in, you know, here looking at all these things. And I'm not going to tell you what any of them are, but I want you to just quickly, I did it on Instagram, let me know what you would like next. And we had two and a half thousand comments in like a few minutes. So, so we then put them in, you know, some like nine people wanted deodorant. But what was interesting is that of those people, there were some big ones. And those big ones were maybe number six on what I was doing next. And I thought, I'm going to put that number one now because I know that 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 um, appetite for that is huge. Well, we have to work towards wrapping up. I just want to go deeper because that level of cultivation of community, I think there's, there's something that people can really learn from you. What advice would you give to really cultivate just such a deep connection with your tribe and, and really foster that? So, you know, you get that many comments in that period yeah, of time. Is it because you've been on TV for so long? Like it, it was like... I don't, because you know, like when I was on TV, then I was off TV for a few years and I had a 16 thousand on Instagram. I wasn't like this kind of, you know, whatever, the kind of social media person that it came from that. But yeah. it's the fact that whenever somebody leaves a comment, we like it or we respond back. So, so people feel they're heard. And when you're a community and you follow something, like if you follow a, a, a somebody on in music, you kind of, the idea that you might get a response will be minimal because there'll be 28 million comments on Ariana Grande's, you know, 200 million Instagram accounts. So that scale doesn't work for us, okay? Um, but when you're at a few million, it can work. And it's that fact that, you know, I, on, on, on DMs, so on normal ones, we respond to everything, but DMs, you have primary, general, and then you have what I call the dark hole requests, okay? So primary, I will do myself. And secondary, I'll do myself. I won't do Facebook directly. We do the team does that, but I'll scroll through the answers because occasionally I go down the weeds and I want to check the right answers. In the requests, I will kind of literally randomly close my eyes, click on one. I won't look. Oh, they have that many followers. I just won't give a shit. And I think there's something in the zeitgeist about that. So they might have 20 followers, but I'll just every you know hundred, I'll just scroll and then click, and then I'll respond and unblock them and put them into um, general, mm. and just. Out of the blue, they get this message and a response. And that's incredibly powerful because they're heard and people need to be heard. Yeah, but as a CEO of a 200-person company, is that the best use of your time? Okay, let me throw this one back at you. A guy started a competitor to British Gas, the most successful energy company in England. And his desk is in customer service. And he's a CEO. And he's a seasoned CEO. And I sat at a breakfast with him once of CEOs, and he said, the most important thing I can do for the business is to know exactly what our customers want because it reflects every single thing we do. There you go. All right, we're going to move the hot seat round. Rapid fire question and answer. How do you define success? Having the freedom to do what you have a passion for and to have many people buy into that passion. Who's your favorite style icon in history? Iris Apfel. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Mm, might be like Rockefeller. 
that original barren, you know, I was, I was looking at the original kind of people who made America and just like turned things around on every situation to think of a new way to deal with something. What's the one thing entrepreneurs need to be successful? Never giving up. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much, Trudy. This has been a ton of fun. I've learned so much from you and congratulations on all your success. And I'm looking forward to continuing following the journey. Thank you. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.